Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 88 for our Old Testament scripture reading this morning. One of the things that we find throughout the Psalter is that there are various psalms for various occasions. We have psalms of adoration, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms uh, that recall the mighty acts of the Lord in history, psalms of confession and repentance, and psalms that anticipate the coming of the Messiah. Perhaps, however, more uh, than any other psalm uh, we find uh, in uh, the psalms, uh, the highest number of them are what we call psalms of lament. Psalms that recognize that in this present situation, in our present circumstances in this life, things are not the way that they should be. In other words, the Psalter is not just a bunch of happy, clappy verses. Rather, it recognizes the reality of sin and offers the great hope to the redeemed that there is a God who hears, even when there doesn't seem to be uh, any hope according to to our own present expectations or sight. This is really, um, from one aspect, uh, the most depressing psalm, probably the most depressing chapter in the entire uh, book of Scripture. And yet we know and notice the great hope that still remains uh, in the psalmist as he prays to the Lord. And we'll find echoes of this language in our sermon text this morning. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol, that is the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all of your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved, my friend, to shun me. Darkness has become my only companion. Now turning with me, if you will, to Second Corinthians chapter 4. Give our attention this morning to verses 7 to 12. Perhaps a passage that we are all familiar with, but we need to understand this passage within the context 
of this entire letter that Paul is writing under inspiration of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do come before you this morning asking that you would hear our prayer to illumine our hearts to understand what your word says, that we might cling to those promises by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. What's the most precious gift you've ever received? I want you to think about that for just a moment, at least in terms of earthly standards. Remember a number of years ago, um, uh, I uh, ended up flying home to visit my family uh, for Christmas. Uh, And uh, a few weeks prior, this is back when I still had social media, my mom had posted a rather goofy little cartoon to my uh, Facebook page. And the uh, video was something uh, like this. It said, Santa didn't get me no banjo this Christmas. Uh, One of the reasons my mom posted it was because I had always wanted to play the banjo, Uh, not because I have any particular skill in such things, but mainly because I grew up watching old Steve Martin's stand-up routines with the banjo with him having the arrow uh, through his head. And of course, I asked my mom uh, on social media, she posted, I said, is this a hint uh, for my Christmas gift this year? To which she responded, absolutely not. and it wasn't. That wasn't her plan. She just thought it was funny because it was a cute little cartoon. There's a picture of a Steve Martin uh, poster in the background of the cartoon with him with the arrow through the head playing the banjo. Um, but what happened over the next few days was rather uh, interesting. On uh, uh, My mom, one of her high school friends that she hadn't seen in several decades, uh, that lady, uh, uh, her husband had been a professional banjo player semi-professional at least, and he had passed away uh, just a few months prior, and she had apparently seen this uh, Facebook post or whatever and contacted my mom and said, uh, I have my husband's banjo and am willing to, to sell it to you. So anyways, I didn't know any of the story that was going on, and uh, I went home and uh, made it through the front door after flying in from Chicago, and I walked in, and there was a big cardboard box uh, sitting uh, by the uh, front door in the living room. My parents said, open it up. And I opened up the box, and the box, of course, is all this garbage, all this newspaper and stuff. I'm like, what is this box? I really had no clue what it was. Uh, and Because uh, I trusted my mom that she would not lie to me, that I was absolutely not getting a banjo that year for Christmas. And, uh, I opened up, and sure enough, there was uh, this beautiful banjo, uh, several decades old, uh, not even a model number on it. It was so old. Uh, one in which... Um, my parents took it into a, a music store to, to get, just kind of worked on a bit, and uh, the, music, the, the, the guitar owner said, I'll give you any guitar in this room for this banjo. 
The parents said, no way, apparently this is worth something. But what I think is interesting is uh, I never kept the box, uh, the cardboard box that came in. I, I barely remember what the cardboard box, box looked like because that's not what was important. What was important was the gift uh, inside the box. The point we see here is an analogy that Paul is bringing before us this morning is that the gospel gives us a particular treasure. But just as the treasure that I was given by my parents was not the cardboard box, but the gift that came in the box. So Paul describes here that God gives a precious treasure in cardboard boxes and that we should not confuse the gift box for the gift itself. More pointedly here, what Paul is saying is that we should not confuse the message for the messenger. That the gospel comes in disposable men, weak and frail, and God displays, therefore, his power in powerless pots. We'll see this in three considerations set before us. First, we'll consider the matter of clay pots or jars of clay as the ESV uh, translates it quite uh, nicely here in verse 7. Secondly, we'll consider the Christian's great paradox in verses 8 to 10. And finally, the question of Christ's power in verses 11 and 12. So clay pots, the Christian paradox, and Christ's power. One of the questions that Paul is presenting before us here in the fourth chapter is this. If the gospel is indeed so powerful, more powerful than what we saw under Moses, then why is Paul so powerless? If the new covenant ministry is in fact so glorious, why is there so much suffering? Why wouldn't we see more victorious Christian living as it were? As you read about the, uh, the Israelites of old in, in the Old Testament, as, as there was triumph after triumph after triumph, battle after battle, and yet the Christian church does not engage in a political battle, a battle where they take up arms. Rather, it is a people who are continually being persecuted, made fun of, ridiculed, and even cast into jail and murdered even by the state. Well, Paul here gives a particular analogy as he's trying to uh, tease forward the nature of new covenant ministry and its distinctiveness from that of the old covenant more and more. If you were to go to Home Depot uh, and you go to the gardening section, you would find those terracotta jars. I think everybody knows what kind of jar I'm speaking of. They cost roughly 78 cents, usually less than a buck. They're disposable, they're fragile, they break easy, right? But for those of us who go there to any other gardening section of any other, you know, pick your place that you enjoy going uh, to see uh, really fruitful plants, uh, you don't go to look at the pots. Rather, you go to look at what's in the pot. You go to look at the plants or the flowers that are found in these breakable containers. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 7. He says, we have this treasure in terracotta pots. Paul's point here is, I'm the pot. The emphasis here is not so much the cheapness of Paul as it is his own fragility. Here the clay jar becomes a metaphor for human frailty. The reality that from dust we came into dust we shall return. We see this language replete throughout the Old Testament. For instance, in Job chapter 10, uh, when Job cries out to the Lord in the midst of his suffering, he says, O Lord, remember that you have made me like a clay pot. Lamentations chapter 4, as the prophet uh, mourns the destruction of Jerusalem, he says that the precious sons of Zion are regarded as earthen pots. 
easily breakable. Like a throwaway Starbucks cup. It's like the cardboard box to a Big Mac. The most beautiful cheeseburgers on the face of this earth. A beautiful cardboard box, but how many people keep uh, the Big Mac cardboard box after you've eaten the Big Mac? And I'm not counting, you know, looking at the, the, the floor to my passenger seat. Uh, we have a bunch of <clears throat> Big Mac boxes I need to dispose of. But what's, what's the purpose here? Paul is showing and reminding us where the real power lies. That the real treasure, the real power lies with God and not with man. Remember, this is how God operates. This is nothing new. We see it even in the Old Testament. Remember Abraham and, and Sarah. God gives Abraham the promise that he's going to have a son at 75, and that's already kind of pushing the limit in terms of age and childbearing. And yet, what does the Lord do? He waits yet another 25 years before he fulfills his promise so that nobody would mistake the fact that this is not of Abraham's own doing. Here's an infertile couple, and yet the Lord displays his power uh, in such a way to such an aged couple to demonstrate But this is God's work and not the work of human action. You think of the the, the distinction, the contrast given in 1 Samuel between David and Saul. The kingdom of Israel wants a king. And here comes Saul, a man who is head and shoulders above the rest. Here's a man who would be on the front cover of, of a fashion magazine, a man who is considered beautiful in the eyes of many. And then you have David. Uh, the, the, the runt of the litter, uh, the least uh, of uh, a group of six, seven brothers, uh, really short in statue, stature. Nobody really gives him any attention, even his brothers pick on him. And yet, which is the one whom God chooses? The runt or the one where everybody goes, that is the guy we want as our leader. The Lord says, I'll give you a king, but the true king is not found uh, by outward appearance. Remember Gideon, where here he has an army of 30,000. The Lord says to to Gideon, so that Israel may not boast, saying, my own power has saved me. I will reduce your army to about 300. It's through that that the enemy forces will be overcome. To be reminded, it's not by power, it's not by might, but it is by the Spirit of the Lord God. And we're reminded even in Matthew 26, where Jesus, uh, before his crucifixion, Tells Pilate, he says, don't you know I have the power to, to summon a, a legion of angels to effect salvation and deliverance? And yet, in the Lord's wisdom, he chooses the path of the cross, the path of suffering and humiliation and weakness and death. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as the foolishness of the cross. It is that that displays the power of God. There's an operative principle that Paul keeps bringing home here to the Corinthian congregation, that the, the formula is not my powerlessness plus God's power equals my power, as if all we have to do is give the right incantation, and now we will be supercharged uh, to act like some type of spiritual superman. Rather, the formula that Paul sets forth is my powerlessness plus God's power equals still God's power. God's power is manifested in the midst of our own weakness and suffering. God shows his strength in the midst of our own stupidity and in the midst of our own humiliation. Time and time again, God's power is displayed most when his people are most discouraged. So take heart. 
God's power is displayed when they are at their weakest to show that we are not saved by our own strength. Our ministry does not uh, flourish on account of our own good looks, our own virtues, our own charisma, or our own gifting. I think for so many of us, either as individuals or thinking about the life of the congregation, our own personal ministries that we're involved in, we would perhaps think this, if only I had X, then I would have a more effective ministry. Perhaps if I had a bigger platform, better health, maybe a better income, um, if only we had no more pandemic restrictions, then surely we would finally be that flourishing church. But that's not how God operates. God makes His people most effective when they feel the least effective. So that way you don't confuse the gift with the package that comes in it. This is the Lord's work to remind us that we are not to rely on our own strength or ingenuity. All the gifts that we think we might have, they are gifts indeed, and they are gifts from the Lord, but that is not why the Lord loves us. And that is not how the Lord operates. Right, when you get a gift, you don't keep the wrapper, you toss it. The, the, the gift box, the wrapper is expendable. And this is Paul's point here. I am not the gift. I am not here to preach ourselves, even though we are commending ourselves to be imitated, Paul says in the opening verses of this chapter. Rather, our point is to preach Christ. Christ is the gift, this great gift of salvation. I am just the gift box. I am weak. I am expendable. I am a throwaway Starbucks cup. But again, this is God's own purpose design so that you will not mistake God's doing for Paul's own personal charisma or charm or intellectual fortitude. You know, one of my favorite uh, uh, quotes, I think, in all of, uh, of church history, I actually have a hoodie that has this. And I had friends in seminary who would make fun of me, uh, mildly poking fun at me, I should say, uh, because it was the quote that I had on my desktop for my uh, laptop in, in, in the seminary classroom. And it's a, it's a very short phrase, and it's this. It says, it comes from the 17th century, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. It almost sounds cynical uh, in, in such a way that I, I just love. But the whole point, I think, in, in, encapsulates Paul's purpose here. And what you see even with John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease. Uh, my point is not to, to build a ministry that revolves around me. I recognize that I am fully expendable, the minister is one who can be forgotten. I think it's what distinguishes in one, what Paul's getting as the, the distinction between a true gospel minister and the celebrity preachers. Uh, even this past week, you see in the news that these reports that have come out of a, uh, of a, a celebrity uh, Christian minister who died about a year ago, and now these reports have come out of some very nasty, nasty, hideous things that had been done in his decades of ministry. And yet we have these celebrity preachers who make themselves indispensable where the whole ministry would fall apart if they were to go. That the whole ministry would collapse when they would die. And yet for Paul, he says, I'm dispensable because I am not the gift. My purpose is to point you to the real treasure. And that treasure is Christ. It's an indispensable ministry and yet it is an expendable person. And I think this reminds us that so long as we think that we are indispensable, we will never truly die to self. 
because we are called to crucify our own pride and vainglory. I believe it was Luther who, calls it, who said that we are to crucify our virtues as well as our vices. Because if we use it to point to ourselves, then those, those great gifts become hideous demons, to quote C.S. Lewis. But it leads to a certain strange paradox, doesn't it? The Christian finds himself in a certain situation, not just uh, we see for Paul, but also for the believer, as we see in verses 8 to 10. Right? If, in, in verse 7, Paul is telling us that God reveals his power through human weakness. Here in verses 8 to 10, he now tells us what that actually looks like on the ground. Here he presents four perplexing paradoxes, these contradictions that we are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and yet at the same time we are not crushed, we are not capsized, we are not forsaken, nor are we destroyed. Each of these contrasts bring out something particular that Paul is trying to say. The first is that we are afflicted, not crushed. Paul himself uses this language even in this letter to speak of his own ministry. If you look uh, at chapter 5, uh, verse 7, he describes his ministry in Macedonia. Uh, as, he's, uh, as he'll return uh, later in this chapter, it's either chapter 5 or chapter 7, as he returns later in, in this letter uh, about how, remember, he relocates to Macedonia and he's still waiting to hear Corinth's response to that, that tear-stained letter that he wrote. And Paul says this, he says, we're afflicted at every turn. There's a, a fighting without and there are fears within. Everywhere he turns, there is nothing but, but warfare. Pressure on every side. Not just one or two uncomfortable circumstances, but he's hemmed in. He is a man squeezed to the pulp, pressed in by affliction. Paul's point is that he has been put under great and intense pressure that leads him to great sorrow. But although pressured, he has not been pulverized. He has been surrounded, as it were, but not snuffed out. The second uh, phrase he gives that he is perplexed but not driven to despair. He's like a man lost at sea. The boat has capsized. He's in over his head but he hasn't quite yet drowned. It's the language we see in Psalm 88. It's also, it also mirrors the language that we see in Jonah chapter 2, saying, I, I sank and I sank and I sank beneath those lapping waves. So close to death, so utterly helpless, so burdened beyond our strength, Paul writes in this first chapter, that we despaired of life itself. This isn't just the pressure of coming, uh, uh, going into work and clocking in and sitting under pressure, and then at five o'clock you get to punch out and go home and forget about it all. This is hunting him down everywhere he goes. He is at his wit's end, even though he is not yet in the madhouse, so to speak. As that one translator puts it. He's confused but not confounded. One, another translator uh, puts it like this. He's at loss, but he is not a loser. He's a man who is brought to the brink, but he has not fallen off the cliff. And for Paul, that really encapsulates the Christian ministry, the ministry under the new covenant, and even the life of the Christian as a whole. It feels certainly like a cross. We are nailed to circumstances that feel like they are downright killing you, where all you want to do is die, where death feels like a, a cleaner way out. And Paul's not writing uh, as, if he, uh, as if he's just uh, writing some type of academic textbook. 
you know, in the, in the ivory towers of academia, talk about how, how tough suffering is, you know, as he sits on his yacht. No, what he is doing is he's writing as a man who's in the storm himself, as a man who has, in fact, capsized. He says here also that he's been persecuted but not forsaken. He's been hunted down like an animal, and yet he is not without hope. Notice that language of not being forsaken draws into, into view uh, one of the most reiterated promises that we find in the Old Testament, one that Christ himself gives uh, right before he ascends to heaven. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. What shall separate us from Christ's love, Paul writes to the church of Rome, shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, shall famine, shall nakedness, danger, sword, white, uh, we might also add, shall uh, 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 pandemics, shall church strife separate us from the love of Christ. No, Paul says, he says, in all these things we are actually super conquerors through Christ, through him who loved us. We're struck down but not destroyed, one uh, a commentator describes it like this. He is one who has been pistol whipped, but he has not been gunned down. Paul says, what are all these circumstances then? Are they simply signs that we need a more positive perspective? We just need to slap a smile on our face and pretend like everything's okay. Is this proof that we need to revamp a ministry formula? No, rather we find that what Paul says is this is actually where, right where God wants us. This manifests Christ's own dying in our very bodies. It's part of that daily reminder to keep us from boasting in ourselves and, uh, uh, and, and not in the gospel. That our goal is to boast in the gospel and not ourselves. It's the Christian's daily paradox. He's called to die daily. To take up a cross is not simply uh, to, to wear gold uh, ornament around your neck. I'm not uh, criticizing those who wear gold necklaces or anything like that, but that's not the, when it's just taking up your cross, it's a real vivid metaphor for daily dying, and it's really, uh, the, the main focus is dying to self. In some ways, it might be easier to, 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 to suffer as a martyr at the hands of others, but, but to suffer and to put our own desires to death, I think, is an even more painful path to follow. To be continually brought to the brink of despair, to continually say, my heart wants X, and yet the gospel commands that I put those desires to death. Why does this happen? Paul says here, so does that Christ's resurrection power might be manifested in us. To suffer the loss of all things that we might gain Christ as our chief end and our chief reward. To suffer all things that we might know Christ's friendship even in the midst of suffering. See, on the one hand, Paul sets forth this pattern for all believers that it is a pattern of suffering unto glory. In other words, the suffering comes first, then the glory. And that suffering for the believer it was, is something that will beset us to a greater or lesser extent every day until we die or until the Lord returns. The glory is something that's reserved for the resurrection of the dead. And yet, on the other hand, Paul also says that the Christian life is one of simultaneous death and resurrection. So it's not just death, then resurrection. It is a simultaneous death and resurrection. Christ reveals his resurrection power in the midst of our powerlessness. His life is manifested in our suffering and in our weakness. Perhaps we can put the question like this. 
which demonstrates greater power. To be exempt from all suffering, or to be, or to be preserved through the midst of it. How is God's power put on greater display? To say, ah, you're baptized, you profess the name of Christ, great, everything's good, hunky-dory from here on out. What better way than to see that people just flock into the churches? If I was told that you can make 90K a year uh, by asking Jesus into your heart, and you, know, you won't have to pay, worry about any bills or any doctor's appointments or any cancer threats, but then the question would be, why are people coming to, to faith? Is it, is it for the benefits? Or is it for Christ himself? To be so identified with Christ in the midst of his suffering that we would consider even suffering with Christ to be of greater value than all the treasures and pleasures that this world has to offer. The strange paradox for the believer is that Christ brings us to the brink he brings us to the end of ourselves so that we can look away from ourselves and so look to Christ. And it leads us to our final point here we see in verses 11 and 12 is that these things manifest Christ's power, even in the midst of our powerlessness. Notice that there's a repeated phrase here in verses 10 and 11 that shows a double purpose. Notice verse 10, Paul says, we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that his life might be manifested in our bodies. And then in verse 11, he says the exact same thing nearly word for word over again. Always being given over to death so that his life might also be manifested in our bodies. Again, notice that it's a simultaneous death and resurrection in the Christian life. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I, would, I long to know the resurrection power of Christ, that I might participate in his sufferings, so that I might may, uh, uh, attain the resurrection from the dead. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul has this envelope of resurrection where he speaks about resurrection as two bookends, and yet they are bookends that we find in the middle of it is the, is the reality of suffering with Christ, participating with Christ in his sufferings. Paul's point here and elsewhere is this, that Christ's resurrection power is made known not simply in our deliverance, which comes on the last day, but his resurrection power is made known in our greatest weaknesses. Two things to consider here. Uh, notice that he says, carrying about in our body the death of Christ. The first thing to recognize is he's not talking about a second atonement, as if Christ's death on the cross was somehow insufficient, so now we're called to kind of pick up that excess baggage and that our daily deaths uh, uh, somehow uh, uh, now atone for the sins of others. That is not what he's saying. Rather, the point that he's bringing into view here is one that he's had already in these previous uh, chapters. Remember, the glory of the new covenant is this, that the Spirit is at work in the midst of the church, and the purpose of the Spirit is to make us look like Christ. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, which we looked at two weeks ago, there is a spirit-wrought transformation that is a process where the Spirit works and molds and shapes us to look like Christ in his death. It's a process, being daily given over to death. That is the process of sanctification. Sanctification is not simply a 10-step process to have a more victorious Christian life. In one sense, sanctification is this process of greater and greater mortification 
of our own sinful deeds and desires. The language itself here is not simply being given over to death, but being given over to this daily dying, the process of it. And yet the language here echoes the same language we see at Christ's own betrayal or Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 where he speaks of Christ being given over to death. That the Spirit and His secret work under this ministry shapes us to look like Christ even as He was suffered, even as He suffered, even as He was betrayed, even as He was falsely accused, even as He was crucified. We see it throughout the whole Old Testament. Why is it that all these Old Testament figures look so much like Christ? Think of Daniel in Daniel chapter 6. Here's a man who refuses uh, 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 to, to sin, who refuses to kowtow to the pressures of the world. He is called the Lord's anointed prophet, and yet uh, uh, the governors, the nations, the kings of the, of the earth, of the greatest empire in the earth, take counsel together to falsely accuse Daniel, and he is thrown into the pit. Alternative translation, he is thrown into the grave where he is to be devoured by lions. A stone is rolled over the pit, and the next day, Daniel chapter 6, it says that here, it's Daniel 3. He is raised on account of his blamelessness. It's a picture of Christ. Centuries before Christ comes, Christ who himself is falsely accused. Put to death. Put into a grave, the stone was rolled, and yet he was vindicated and raised on account of his blamelessness. This is not a sheer accident. The Spirit works the in the lives of the Old Testament saints to point forward to the person and work of Christ, is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. And what we find is the same is true even under the New Covenant. That even in our own providential, uh, in the old providential affairs of life, that God takes his children and has us suffer, that we might look like Christ as an evangelical witness to the watching world. Paul calls it the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, is a great privilege of belonging to Christ. It causes us to ask ourselves which do we find more precious? The sufferings of Christ or the treasures of of this world. The second thing to note here is that Christian suffering has a particular purpose, that Christ's resu- res- resurrection life might be manifested, so that Christ might increase and that you might decrease in the process, so that this treasure might shine in a clay pot. In other words, Paul's saying his suffering, even though it is not, uh, uh, it, it is not a second atonement, it is nevertheless evangelical. Paul in here, uh, here embodies the message of suffering, as is not just a message of the cross, here we find a messenger of the cross, one who his very life is shaped by the cross. Paul suffers, he stammers, he admits these things. His opponents shine and they sparkle, they speak so, speak so eloquently. But all of his false te- these false teachers do is they continue to point to themselves, to their own greatness. There was a, a, a TV evangelist uh, a number of years ago who had written a, a, a book and he made it on CNN, and CNN interview was eight to ten minutes long, something like that. He spent the entire time talking about himself. Not once did he mention the name of Christ. Paul here says that he suffers so that nobody would be enamored with him, but that people would be enamored with Christ. Paul's weakness manifests God's strength. 
That's not something that false teachers can replicate. Because they're so self-consumed. That's why when it comes to calling a minister or an elder or a deacon, the prime thing to work through and to look at is character. Because that is what matters. You look at the qualifications for an elder or for a deacon. Yeah, for an elder it says they've got to be apt to teach. But then you see the, you see the litany of, uh, 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 of the qualifications. Everything else has to do with character. Not with whether or not you graduated from a seminary. Not whether or not you can parse Hebrew uh, or Greek. But do you look like Christ? Because it is the elders of this church, it's the deacons of this church, who serve as models that the rest of the congregation is called to imitate. Men who point not to themselves. Men who are not concerned with defending themselves, but men who are concerned with pointing others to Christ. Paul here speaks of the suffering that befalls every officer under the new covenant. Paul here is an extreme example, but he is an example nonetheless. Notice what he says is the intended result. He does not say at, here at the end of verse 12 that it is death in life so that life may be manifested, uh, uh, death in us so that we might have life in us. That's not what he says, is it? Rather, he says death is at work in us so that life might be manifested in you. In other words, to be called to the ministry, to be called as an officer in Christ's church, entails a greater amount of suffering. They don't really teach you that in seminary. If they did, I, I missed that day. Probably at Popeye's. The idea is if you want to be at, if you want if you want to serve in the ministry, be prepared to suffer. But that suffering has an intended purpose. Not so that you can have uh, a great and wonderful lifestyle that you can kick back and, uh, you know, sip on a mojito, but, but for the greater purpose of seeing Christ form in each, formed in each and every member of the congregation. That's the purpose. Not saying that you guys are exempt from suffering either. And Paul will get to that later. That this is something that we, as, as a people, are bound up to suffer with Christ. Christ calls his ministers to suffer so that the people will not confuse God's uh, power, the gospel power, with my own rhetorical flair, my own personal charisma. Christ's power is demonstrated most by really unimpressive ministers. What's the point we see here? The power of the gospel is that power resides in God. Not my own ability to persuade. Try as I may to persuade you. But here we see the great glory of the gospel. That God works effectively through the ineffective. So that he might be glorified. And not us. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the ministry of your word. And we ask that Christ would be magnified to such an extent that we would all decrease. Show us where we have boastful hearts that we might put that to death, and if we do not put it to death, that you would put it to death for us by the working of your Spirit. Humble us that you might be exalted, that Christ might be magnified in this church. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.